have a car, then it can be hard to get to your destination, can't it, if you don't have a car? We all hate paying for taxis. Uh, if there isn't a bus, what are your options? Well, in November uh, last year, uh, this man, or a man rather, uh, eyed this truck, uh, the, and this is the driver here. He saw the truck sitting at the, the truck stop and he thought, hmm. And then he kind of spotted that very bed-like space between the wheels and thought, you know, I could just ride in there, couldn't I, to my destination. He needed to get home and thought, well, this B-double truck is the perfect way of doing it. So he climbed on board and, uh, and off the truck went. It, uh, it won't surprise you that uh, his poor judgment was in part due to intoxication. But on the other level, you know, think of his, his good lateral thinking. In his mind, he needed to get to a certain place and the truck was going that way and the highway it only goes one direction, so what could possibly go wrong? Well, I'm, I'm, I suppose you can see where this is going. He wanted to get 40 kilometres down the highway, and I think I have a map there. Uh, the truck didn't stop for 400 kilometres. He wanted to get from A to B, ended up all the way down at C. And uh, he told the police the plan was to disembark when the truck stopped at a red light to just kind of climb off. But, of course, highways don't have red lights. Well, he was okay. He was fined $288 and given a lift to the train station. Well, uh, in today's passage, Paul begins his second missionary journey uh, to take the gospel to Europe. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't mind a holiday in Europe. Uh, Although if it was Paul writing the Lonely Planet travel guide, under things to do would have to include being beaten, put in chains, imprisoned, uh, chased by mobs, not exactly on the usual Greek to-do list. But Paul's journey is... uh, through five different cities, key cities, and the journey actually sets up much of the, the background to the Old Testament, to the New Testament books, sorry. Uh, New Testament, not Old Testament. Uh, Paul goes through Europe and establishes these different churches, and then he later on writes letters to the churches, and that's how we get the letters in the, the New Testament, the letters of Philippians and Thessalonians in uh, today's section, and then Uh, In chapter 18, in a couple of weeks' time, uh, he'll visit the Corinthians in this same journey. So let's have a look at the journey. And the thing that we're going to see time and time again is this same pattern of a proclamation. Paul preaches the gospel, uh, and then we see two things. There's persecution, and then there's progress. The gospel is effective. People are saved, and yet there's always persecution that flares up. And for us here, we're shown something of the fire that we're dealing with. We're shown what we can expect when we proclaim salvation in Jesus and people are saved and in turn we will face persecution. Well, I've got some headings uh, to go through the sections. Uh, Firstly, plans prevented. Plans prevented. You can uh, follow along in your outline or they'll come up on screen. Paul's trip, he has a plan. It's better plan than our truck hitchhikers. Although, equally, perhaps, plans don't go according to Paul's plan, or events don't go according to Paul's plan. Perhaps not unlike the hitchhiker, the Spirit is led away, uh, or Paul is led away by the Spirit uh, to unexpected places, to places um, that the Spirit has prepared people's hearts to be changed. So let's begin in chapter chapter 16, verse 6. It says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia and were prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the message in Asia. 
Now, as tempting as it is to spend ages on the map, I'll, I'll just give you some uh, basics. Basically, Paul is going to take uh, the gospel through what is now Turkey. There it's called Asia. But the spirit, you notice, uh, pushes him on. It, it, it uh, prevents him from going there. And then in verse 7, it continues. It says, They came to Mysia. They tried to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So he, he wants to kind of go up and around uh, through the stands, all the stands, and then kind of toward Russia. Uh, but again, it says, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Uh, and so then in verse 9, the spirit sends a vision of a Macedonian man uh, pleading for help. And so with this, they know that it's God's will that they will take the gospel over to Europe. And so they do. This will be uh, Jesus' will for the ordering of the mission. These are the places where he has prepared people to hear and be saved. And uh, if you think how this might apply to our lives today, well, it would surely be a reminder not to go against God's will. He has a plan. We need to trust it. Uh, It can be really hard sometimes. But when God reveals his will, as he does in Scripture, it's absolute madness to go against it. Well, moving on, uh, Dr. Luke, who writes the account, did you notice he's a little uh, over-fascinated with sailing? He gives us all these kinds of nautical uh, measures in verse 11. Uh, but the point is they sail very quickly. They make uh, suspiciously good progress. It's kind of saying the Spirit is helping them along. Uh, and all of a sudden they are at their first stop. Uh, I've called the Fantastic Philippians. For uh, Philippi, where they stop, is where we get the epistle to the Philippians, of course. And what unfolds is this uh, really fantastic account of how the church there began, of these early people that are saved. And they're such an improbable bunch uh, to ever end up in the same little house church. And yet the Spirit has these people in his sights. We meet three kind of key characters. Firstly, we meet a powerful woman named Lydia. And for whatever reason, uh, the Jewish men aren't meeting in uh, the synagogue And so uh, the women are meeting by the river. And so Paul goes to take the gospel to the Jews first. And so he speaks with them, uh, verse 13. And in verse 14, it says, A woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to pay careful attention to what was spoken by Paul. And so she's a a dealer and apparently quite persuasive, we find out. And yet God opens her heart to the truth of Paul, who is proclaiming the gospel. And the model model of gospel spread is simple from Scripture. And we see it here. The truth of Jesus is proclaimed here by Paul. And then God's Spirit opens eyes, opens hearts to know truth. Of course, then the next step is baptism and fellowship. Uh, These are the single... uh, Uh, signals the symbols of a a life that has changed. And we see that in verse 15. Uh, Verse 15, it says, After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she is persuaded. She persuades them. She persuades them to stay. Clearly, um, she's quite a businesswoman and no one says no to Lydia. And yet she has been shown how to say yes to Jesus. Well, next we meet uh, a powerless girl. Uh, Then as they're going around, uh, a demon-possessed slave girl takes to following them around and crying out, verse 17, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the slaves of the Most High God. 
well, what do you do with that? I mean, surely any publicity is good publicity. Surely this is free endorsement. However, you have to be careful about who you let endorse you. Uh, for example, um, Adidas, I don't know if you saw this, Adidas chose to get a celebrity endorsement from Kanye West back in March last year, and they collaborated and produced a series of sneakers called Yeezy. Uh, Yee was Kanye's new name. Uh, Adidas were endorsed by Kanye. They were sure to do well, uh, but as you may know, Kanye went a little off the rails and said some very spicy things and was um, generally pretty offensive and rude. And so Adidas had to distance themselves from him. They had to kind of try and uh, suddenly they don't want him as an endorsement and they had to pull everything all of that, you know, this new Yeezy, uh, Yeezy sneaker whole uh, kind of thing had to be set aside. Uh, and yet they'd already produced the sneakers. Uh, $2 billion worth of stock. $2 billion worth of stock. And now they had this problem. What are we going to do with all these sneakers? That's so much, like a global supply. <laughs> and so, you know, it was interesting seeing what they uh, decided to do. And eventually they kind of sold them through the back door online and um, they're still selling them now. But it's another, it's another example in a long line of celebrity endorsements that uh, go wrong when the celebrity becomes a little unhinged. We see that a fair bit, don't we? Well, I think that's maybe a little bit what is going on here uh, with Paul. He doesn't want this endorsement from the satanic spirits. Uh, it's going to confuse people. Uh, he doesn't want an endorsement from the Roman Empire. As you notice, he often keeps his Roman citizenship quiet as well. He doesn't want to confuse the message of the gospel with spiritualism, with these uh, New Age spirits, we might say. And so Paul casts the spirit out in verse 18, and it, and it sets the slave girl free. Um, we assume she is taken in by the church. But this is where the story shifts, because although we've seen the gospel progress, and we've seen it, the gospel being uh, proclaimed, now we meet persecution. For the slave girl's owners who, I mean, when you think about it, they're effectively like spiritual pimps, uh, as one person has said. Uh, it's actually a little, uh, it's pretty sad. It's a bit like slavery or trafficking that we see today. Um, this girl is being used by them. Uh, and she's generating good money for them with her predictions. Verse 19 says, the loss of income leads them to seize Paul and Silas. Uh, though, of course, their official complaint isn't, uh, you know, we've lost a lot of money, but it, they, they play the cultural card. Uh, you see it there in verse 20. It says, These men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting uh, customs that are not legal for us Romans to adopt or practice. So they kind of play this political cultural card. Uh, you know, perhaps it's un-Australian or it's not tolerant or it's hate speech. Uh, it's the kind of thing that we see used against Christians a lot. We're familiar with these means of persecution as an attempt to silence God's word. But this is all part of God's plan. Remember, he's in the driving seat of, uh, of the B-double truck going down the highway, and we're, perhaps we're just in the undercarriage being taken along. He has a plan, although we're not intoxicated. Maybe drunk on the spirit, I don't know. But the point is, God is in the driver's seat. And we have to remember that when we're faced with persecution, somehow it's all a part of God's plan. Well, uh, in this case, they're thrown into prison. And we meet uh, our third fantastic Philippian, the tough jailer. The city of Philippi, it was a, a place that was full of settled Roman soldiers. 
so it was full of like tough people, really, ex-soldiers. And so the magistrate, you kind of see that here with the way Paul is treated. He deals with Paul a bit like he's a, a barbarian, you know, or, or a peasant. Um, he, they have him beaten with many blows in verse 23, and that would have been like a whip with, uh, you know, the bone on the end of the cord, like really nasty stuff. He would have been in really, really bad shape without getting too graphic. Uh, so it's very heavy-handed, rough treatment. Uh, and then we meet the jailer in verse 24 who continues this treatment saying, put them into the inner prison and secure their feet in the stocks. So again, this is kind of over the top and cruel uh, to the bloodied then uh, to be then left hanging from the stocks in agony, unable to move, unable to sleep. It tells us something of who this jailer was that he would do this. Uh, he seems to have been uh, kind of present there in the jail, and you can only imagine him looking on at Paul uh, at, at this terrible treatment, at, at this terrible condition that he's in. And, uh, you know, this would have made the hardest of prisoners miserable, utterly miserable. I'm quite sure any of us would have been utterly miserable. Uh, and yet, verse 25 says, At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them, bleeding, cut, bruised, chained, and singing praises to God. It's, uh, it's just one of those remarkable moments in Scripture, isn't it? And so we take note, don't we? This is somehow, this is somehow the uh, perfect response for the Christian, isn't it? Uh, in persecution, and yet we're to be transformed, that we can even rejoice. Um, you know, and I don't suggest you tell a suffering person that they should put on a happy face and sing a song. And yet Paul's example here models the outstanding response. Prayer and praise to God in the face of suffering. We pray. Do you notice he prays? We ask for help. We share our pain with God. We ask, for, ask the God who can change all things. And we praise. We remember God's love. We remember his sovereign control over events. We rejoice in his ultimate victory. Uh, and we rejoice, and, and you know, we consider the fact that he suffered to secure and save us. So there is much to praise God for, even in the face of persecution. Well, you know the story. The earthquake comes, the doors are, are swung open, the chains fall off, and the jailer realizes it's all over, and as was the, the, the practice, he draws his sword to take his own life. But verse 28, Paul says, don't, we're still here. And there are, there are two things which are on display here for the tough jailer at this point. Firstly, he can see the gospel power, right? He can see that the gospel, it can't be chained up by the government. It can't be stopped by any human power. Um, you know, they're not going to let it be endorsed by satanic spirits and they're not going to let it be overpowered uh, by the Romans. So the gospel power really shines out. And the other thing was the gospel heart, of course. Like, why would these people not have just run off? Why were they singing praises? What would motivate them to do this? Uh, and this is the context for one of the most remarkable uh, conversions, conversations in all of Scripture. Verse 29. Verse 29 says, Then the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you 
will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the message of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. And so this tough jailer has his heart turned upside down. And Paul's actions, they've defied his understanding and his message has rung true. The jailer's life was spared and saved all in one night. What must I do to be saved? This is what we've all cried out at one point. There is only one answer. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. And we see the change then, we see the change in the jailer's life as he starts caring for them. Verse uh, 33, it says, He took them the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds. To invite these uh, bloodied prisoners into your house, he goes from hating God and his people to loving and caring for them. And so, of course, they all got baptized. Verse 33 ends, Right away, he and all his family were baptized. Praise God. Throughout uh, Acts, we see that there is this kind of um, household uh, nature to when people are saved, that they and their household is always the, the constant refrain because households belong to God. Um, the whole family is baptized. The whole house would have thrown out their idols. Uh, the whole house would have gone to church. Uh, and, of course, we certainly believe that the kids and the infants would have been baptized uh, too, would have been baptized um, on that day. It's okay if you feel differently about that. But uh, there's really no reason from this story to think otherwise here. Well, a final point to make is uh, that we see again hospitality. Did you notice that with Lydia? It was the same thing. And here again, they use their home and the kitchen for fellowship. So verse 34 says, He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced before he, uh, because he had believed God with his entire household. And so Lydia and now the jailer as well uh, as their hearts are open to God, their houses are open to his people. And so we see church life spills out from church into the home as we share our lives together. Well, uh, there is a, a final very interesting round to this story, and that is with the magistrate. The magistrate, he says, you're free to go, Paul. But Paul sees the chance to help defend the faith uh, and this to p- kind of protect this new little Philippian church. And so Paul decides to stand up for himself and the way of the Christians have been treated. Verse 37 says, But Paul said to them, They beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens, and threw us in jail. And now they are going to smuggle us out secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. And so Paul, he picks a fight, doesn't he? He presses the point. And, uh, and this is kind of rare for Paul, uh, but you do see it on a couple of occasions. He uses the privileges of his Roman citizenship for the benefit of this gospel uh, progress, to give uh, these new churches some sort of protection. Uh, and it's tricky. It takes great wisdom knowing when to pick a fight, um, when to stand up for your rights, Certainly in Scripture, you'll notice the emphasis is not on standing up for your rights. Uh, The emphasis is certainly on uh, giving up your rights. Too often we fight out of selfishness. Uh, And yet Paul here, for the sake of the church's peace, the goal is for the church's peace, he throws his weight around uh, that the church would be respected and protected. The other thing I find really intriguing to think about is uh, why didn't Paul say something earlier? 
Uh, why did he, you know, he could have prevented all of those floggings, all of the chains. Uh, and without, you know, going through all the options, I think a key part of the reason was probably that he wanted to enter into the church's sufferings there. Not everyone had his uh, Roman citizenship and could fall on that uh, for protection. So he, he wanted to go through these sufferings along with the church, not unlike Jesus, not unlike Jesus does with humanity, becoming one of us, uh, to show us that he's not above us, uh, in Paul's uh, sake, in Paul's instance, to show them something of what uh, gospel progress was going to cost the church. But uh, anyway, that's an interesting question. We could keep reflecting on that. But we'll, we'll continue on. The scene ends uh, with Paul giving, uh, he's, he's given a, like a diplomatic escort out of the city in verse 40. And, um, you know, it's, it's just interesting. They, they didn't want to let the spirits, the satanic spirits, endorse them. But here they, they, they choose to get the Romans to honor them. Uh, and, and you can just imagine them getting escorted and taking their time and stopping off at their favorite cafe and kind of, just dragging their feet a little bit, and then they, they go and visit Lydia and the other Christians, and uh, it's, it's a way of trying to... Um, certainly, visiting Lydia was very important. It's a way of saying, these are part of uh, our church, and uh, yeah, it would have, would have been quite effective, I think. Well, there we go. What a strange little church. Lydia the powerful, and then the little slave girl are now set free, and then the battle-hardened jailer, all with their lives turned around. Well, we've got two final cities. Let me, uh, let me briefly tell their stories. Firstly, the Thessalonian thugs, I've called them. Uh, Thessalonian thugs, because Thessalonica was a port city with sailors, and of course with sailors and ports comes prostitution, gambling, drunkenness. It was a rough place, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and yet in verse 4 it says, Then some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a great number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. And so a new church, the Thessalonians, is evangelized into existence. And once again, by Paul, proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. And yet, hot on the heels of proclamation progress comes persecution. Verse 5 says, But the Jews became jealous. They brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. And so it's a rough place and this riotous mob is soon stirred by the Jews. Jason, one of the Christians, becomes a a bit of a scapegoat uh, but thankfully is released by officials and then Paul and Silas are snuck out at night to our final city, Berea. And I've called it the Brainy Bereans, the Brainy Bereans, uh, because especially compared to the Thessalonians, Berea was far more civilized. And the Jews there, rather than starting a riot, the Jews actually read the scriptures and weighed the arguments made by Paul. So verse 11 says, The people here were much more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, since they welcomed the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so reading the scriptures with an open heart and an open mind, it's a dangerous thing a dangerous thing. We see in verse 12, consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. You know, so it's always the women keep getting mentioned here. The, the women reading the scriptures, unheard of in that culture. Absolutely unheard of in that culture. This was, this was first wave feminism, way before its time. 
And yet the gospel does not discriminate based on uh, sex or race. We see that time and time again, don't we? It doesn't matter who you are. If you weigh the words of Scripture, the Spirit uses it to change your heart. And how many people have uh, set out to read and disprove the Scriptures only to be converted? Uh, You know, so many famous contemporary authors like Lee Strobel or Josh McDowell. I'm sure many of us have read their books. Uh, Let me pick one uh, final example uh, from uh, a, little, a little while ago now, Sir William Michael Ramsey, uh, born in 1851. Uh, he was unrivaled as top of his field in New Testament history, but he came from that uh, modern German school that believed the Bible was totally unhistoric, so just kind of fanciful stories. He was a, a total skeptic. He was born into a family of lawyers, and so he, he would have set out to apply legal rigor to history and spent years trying to disprove the Acts account, the account that we've been reading. Uh, It should have been easy. Back then, there was no evidence for a number of the cities that Paul mentions in the account in Acts. So uh, Sir William Ramsey thought, this will be easy. I'll just prove some of these didn't exist, and then it'll it'll be all over. But after many years, he concluded, uh, turning his entire field upside down, he concluded that he believed the New Testament to be historically true. I have this great quote from him. It uh, should come up on screen. It says, this is a quote in one of his books, Acts was written by a great historian, a writer who set himself to record the facts as they occurred. A strong partisan indeed, but raised above partiality by his perfect confidence that he had only to describe the facts as they occurred in order to make the truth of Christianity and the honor of Paul apparent. How good is that? And Luke, Luke does that. You, you know, look at the account that we've been given here. Luke just records as it happens, as the gospel goes out, as people are changed. And we read it and we say, wow, how good is God? And so Ramsey went from skeptic to believer. And how many, um, how many, even many in this room can say that they have done the same as God has worked and changed their hearts? Well, turning to Berea finally, uh, we once again see... Paul uh, proclaims, uh, and there is progress, but of course, as well, persecution. Persecution stirred up in verse 13. And the angry mob from Thessalonica hears about now the believers in Berea, and they come all the way down to Berea and stir up some trouble. So once again, Paul is whisked away to the next city, Athens, and we'll read about Athens and Paul next week. Uh, We read in verse uh, 14, uh, of chapter 17, it says, But Silas and Timothy stayed on there. So they stay on and they establish these churches. You can imagine they would have um, set up some services, set up some Bible studies and gospel teams. It's the kind of thing they would have done. Well, it's been such a rich journey through uh, a wonderful piece of our Christian history. Uh, and Luke, our author, saw firsthand and now makes clear that the gospel changes lives as it progresses when it's proclaimed. Uh, And yet when it's proclaimed, it stirs up persecution for believers. And so let's pray that God will give us our fruit, as we've seen here in Acts, when we proclaim, and will give us the heart of Paul and Silas to endure persecution with joy and hope for the good of the church around us. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, be with us as we proclaim, telling all about salvation in Jesus. Please change our hearts by your Spirit. Uh, of the people that we tell. And Lord, strengthen us in the face of persecution that we might sing your praises all the more. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.